Hi, thanks for joining us again. We're taking our Bibles and we're going to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 3. And I want to ask you a question. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're spouting out facts, you're talking, and then you're told that your facts are not correct? But you're convinced that they're correct. So you go back and you do some, do some research and you only, only to find out that what you were saying was not actually correct. And you look around and you're a little sheepish. Well, that happened to me last week. I really appreciate the great friend who decided to text me after uh, my lesson and tell me that my math skills weren't really up to par. Now, what had happened was, uh, if you remember last week, I mentioned that the standing army of Israel needed about 12 square miles to, to be camped. And that was a pretty uh, conservative estimate. And that estimate is still very factual on the 12 square miles. But what wasn't factual was my math. My math was a, a little subpar, to say the least. Uh, I very well understand that 12 square miles is three miles by four miles. I understand that. But if you remember the map last week that I drew, I drew a map for you that was 12 miles by 12 miles by 12 miles, 12 miles squared, not 12 square miles. And I wanted to make sure I corrected that and, and fixed that so that you're not looking and saying to, to people, oh, wow, the standing army must have been huge. 12, square, or 12 miles squared, 144 square miles. Wow, that was, that was massive. So I wanted to correct that. But then it was just frustrating me because I was, I was in my mind. I'm trying to figure out where did I get that from? How did that happen? And so as I was going back and doing some uh, study again, I went back and I found in one of the commentaries by a man named Harrison, he had mentioned that uh, in his mind as he figured it out, the largest that the 2.5 million with their livestock, with their land, with the area needed for waste, with the area needed for the separation from the tabernacle and the area for the tabernacle, he estimated that the largest, and it was an older, like an older style writing commentary, that it would be 12 miles squared or 12 miles by 12 miles by 12 miles. So, so that's where I got it into my head that the, the 12 miles squared versus the 12 squared miles. And I just misspoke. And so I wanted to correct that so that we were all on the same page. But, you know, I don't think I'm the only one who often does that. For example, if I were to say to you, what do you think of when I say the word Levites, what, what comes to mind? More, more than likely, like many of us, it's the word priests. The Levites are the priests. And that would be partially true. It wouldn't be completely true. Because we need to understand that the priests and the Levites, though similar, there's some differences. Uh, I would put it this way, and I think this is a very good way to put it. All priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. And that's important for us to understand as we go into Numbers chapters 3 and 4 to understand there's going to be a distinction that's going to be placed and that there was placed in the nation of Israel in regard to the priests and the Levites. When we look at it, at times it's going to blur together and we understand that because they did become uh, representative of the religious institution, the religious ideologies of Israel together, the priests and the Levites. But remember, even Jesus, when he talks about the uh, Good Samaritan, he talks about a, a Levite comes by, a priest comes by. Well, if we just see him as the same thing, it's sort of like, Jesus, why did two of the same group come by? 
There's a, there's a distinction in the, the Jewish religious system that we need to understand. And so as we look at the difference between the, the priests and the Levites, though they're similar, there is, a, there is a little bit of distinction. So let's talk about some of them. This is not exhaustive, but just a quick overview to get it started, put into our mind. And as we go over the next two weeks here, looking at uh, the priests and Levites, we'll understand a little bit more of what, what they're doing. The priests, they would come from the clan of Koath. Now, the, the tribe of Levi is going to have three different clans. They're going to have the clans, as we see with the Levites, the clan of Merari, the clan of Gershon, and the clan of Koath. The Levites have all three of those. But the priests only come from the clan of Koath. Not only do they only come from the clan of Koath, they are from, directly from the family of Aaron. Okay, so we have the Aaronic priesthood, it's called. You'll, you'll hear about that. There are other members in the tribe of Levi who are from that clan of Koath, but they're from a different family. They're not from Aaron's family, and so they are a Levite and not a priest. The priests were allowed to touch the holy things, whereas the Levites we're going to find are going to carry them, but they're not going to be touching them. They're not to touch them. That is the priest's responsibility to do, to do some of that. And then lastly, we're going to see that the priests, they perform the sacrifices, whereas the Levites are going to do, as you look through chapters 3 and 4, we're going to see this word, the service or the work, come up. They're going to do the work of the tabernacle. They're going to be ministering in and around and aiding the priests as the priests perform the sacrifice and offer uh, the offerings. And so they're, though they're similar and though they're entrenched in the same institution and working toward the same goals, there is a distinction between them. And that's important for us to remember and to understand as we go in to our Bible knowledge and our Bible study of Numbers chapters 3 and 4. So even, even with the priests, there's a distinction in the priesthood. There's responsibilities. The high priest is going to have certain responsibilities, the tribe or the, the family of Eleazar is going to have certain responsibilities. The family of Ithamar going to have certain responsibilities. And so even in the priesthood, there's still responsibilities that are delegated and they have their, their tasks to do. Everybody just didn't all do the same thing. And so as we see that happen, uh, you remember even with the high priest, the high priest is going to... Uh, uh, go into the Holy of Holies. The other ones are not going to. But these, these individuals, the high priest, the priest, the Levites, they did become synonymous with representation. What did they represent? They represented the people before God as they led in worship and sacrifice. And so the people of Israel would see the high priest and the priest and the Levites as they would come to the tabernacle, as they would later come to the temple to worship, they would see them and understand that these were the individuals, all of them who were helping to aid and to lead and be part of the worship and sacrifice that was being brought before God. And as well, they represented God to the people as they taught and they explained his laws. So they had that responsibility to be clear-headed, to be sober-minded, to be able to, to take the word of God and to discern it and to d- disseminate it to the people. So they, they were a representative of God to the people and the people to God. And they became this, this go-between, this mediator, which we know then later on is going to be a beautiful picture down the road when we get to the book of Hebrews 
And we see that we have an even better high priest. We have an even better mediator, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And it all beautifully shadows and points forward to that great one, Jesus Christ, who's going to come and to do all of the priestly duties in his, and take care of all of the priestly sacrifices once and for all. But we'll look at that next week or the week after as we, as we keep going in our studies. But I want you to notice the emphasis. As you look in the book of Numbers, in these first couple chapters, the, the, the skip chapters as we talked about earlier, uh, look at the importance, the outworking of the emphasis upon the Levites and then the priests in the community. They start with the nation. The big census takes two chapters to basically do the census for 11 tribes, for the majority of the people. And then you get to chapter three and four, and we're going to take two chapters to deal with the census and the the responsibilities of the tribe of Levi, just one, or the Levites. Just one tribe is going to get two chapters as opposed to 11 tribes getting two chapters. There's an emphasis, there's an importance that's placed here on Levi. And not even in Levi, when you get to the end of chapter 3, and especially chapter 4, you're going to see an emphasis placed on this clan of Kohath. The, the, the group that the priests, the clan that the priests are going to eventually come out of, because not only do we have an emphasis on Kohath and their carrying of the holy things and their responsibility to carry the ark and the, the table and the altar, but then even directly to the family of Aaron and the time and the emphasis that's, that's put there for the priests. And so as the numbers, the book of numbers lays out in these first chapters, there is an emphasis, even by the amount of words that are given to these, these uh, nations. And then not from the nations to the tribe and to the tribe, the clan, and to the clan, this family. The importance of the priests and the Levites in the community of God. And so as we, we go to Numbers chapter 3, with that as a background, with that as a dropping point, let's look at Numbers chapter 3. This is going to be one of the few times in the book that you're going to actually see Aaron's name before Moses. Look what it says. It says, these are the generations of Aaron and Moses in the day that the Lord spoke with Moses in Mount Sinai. God is still going to be directly speaking to Moses, but it's going to be through Moses and directed to Aaron and the Levites, these next two chapters. And as Aaron is emphasized, God is looking saying, Aaron, this is for you for you to oversee, you are the high priest, you are the one overseeing your family, overseeing the Levites. You need to take great heed, great caution and care to what is going to, to happen. In fact, Moses, Miriam, Aaron, all of them are from that, that clan. They're from the tribe of Levi. They're from the clan of Kohath. And Aaron now is going to be used as he becomes the spiritual leader of Israel. Moses becomes the leader and, and Mo, Aaron's going to be the spiritual leader we see that the directions given to Aaron. Okay, Aaron, I have some direct information for you from God for the people that you are going to oversee and serve with. So you get to, you get to verse 2, and verse 2, it's, you're going to see the chapter opening up, and he's going to say, now these are the sons of Aaron, Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. So we see Aaron's lineage. Nadab is going to be the next. He's the oldest, the next one in line to become the high priest. And it's, it's just laid out here as four sons. And these, all four of these individuals were, were very important. Uh, in fact, you see in verse 3. Verse 3, it says that these are the names of the sons of Aaron, 
the priests which were anointed, who he consecrated to minister in the priest's office. So these individuals, they were anointed. They were consecrated to minister in the priest's office. You can look that up in uh, Exodus chapter 28 and Leviticus 8. But there was, there was great dedication, great festivity, great somberness to this, these moments when these uh, five men were going to be directly consecrated and anointed to do the sacrifice, to do the work of the ministry for the children of Israel. And these men, they were set apart for that unique service. That all of it talks about the holiness, the, the, the set-apartness, the uniqueness that these men had in this religious responsibility before God. And they were going to be the ones who were going to perform the sacrifices. They were the ones, the, the high priest is going to be the one who's going to go into the Holy of Holies on uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. He's going to be the one who's going to take the blood and place it on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant. So you look at these men, and, and we understand from our Bible knowledge and, and what we know, these men were important. These men were vital to the uh, situation that is uh, the religious situation that Israel was in that God had established. But then you get to verse 4. And verse 4, it's just very terse. It's very quick to say, And Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered strange fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. And Eleazar and Ithamar ministered in the priest's office in the sight of Aaron, their father. Now, verse 4 assumes something. Even though it seems quick, it assumes that you have knowledge and I have knowledge of what has happened. And in order for us to understand that, we're going to have to backtrack a little bit and find out what happened with Nadab and Abihu. What was this all about? Because if, if we don't understand that, we're not going to understand the rest of the, the emphasis that's going to be placed in chapters 3 and 4 of Numbers. Moses and Aaron are able to assume that about the people that this is fresh in their mind. Because remember something. The children of Israel at Mount, were at Mount Sinai in the wilderness of Sinai for 12 to 14 months. In that time, you have the second half of the book of Exodus written. You have, it's the whole time of the book of Leviticus, uh, of Exodus, then Leviticus, and the first 10 chapters of Numbers. We think, oh wow, this, this must have happened long time ago. But the death of Nadab and Abihu, in Aaron's mind, it's just a few months ago. It's not, it's, it's the longest, it's within the last year. So this is still a fresh hurt in the life of Aaron, in the life of Eleazar and Ithamar. And the priests and the Levites, they would have well been aware of this situation. In fact, to, to prove that, let's, let's rewind a little bit. Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 10. A few months and a few pages back, we find ourselves in Leviticus 10, which is where you find the story, the account of these two individuals, Nadab and Abihu, the oldest sons of Aaron the high priest. These are, these are men who have promise. They have potential. In fact, haven't we seen it in society? We've all been there. We've all been around. We've seen the athlete who has great promise, great skills, and then they give themselves to drugs or they take steroids and it ruins their career. And it's just, it comes crashing and burning to a halt. We see the businessmen who are very successful, or the businesswoman, the business person, whatever politically correct term I'm supposed to use. Uh, they, they are very successful. 
And then they give in to a few shady deals and all of a sudden they find themselves in prison because they've done some corrupt things. We find ourselves constantly looking at government officials who we held in high regard and because of scandal or potential scandal or because of choices that they've made, they come crashing down. And the potential that is there is lost. We see it in the Bible, don't we? Adam and Eve, great potential, great situation, come crashing and burning through sin. King Solomon, Judas, you have Samson, all individuals who are in situations with great promise, with great hope, with great potential, and yet through life choices and decisions, they come crashing down. That is Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu, great potential. You know, do you remember these words by John Greenleaf Whittier? For all the sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these it might have been. And what might have been of Nadab and Abihu had they not offered this strange fire? Had they not done something that was wrong? What about in our churches? Have we seen it? Individuals who have great promise, they make great professions, they start going gung-ho for the Lord, and yet they find themselves giving in and giving in and more and more to sin, and they find themselves in the dregs. They find themselves in apostasy. They find themselves walking away from God. And it's sad because you see the potential. You see the hope. And you long for them to come back to the Lord. But what was it about Nadab and Abihu that we can learn and that sets the stage for Numbers chapters 3 and 4. Leviticus 9, to set the stage for for chapter 10, Leviticus 9, it's a high point in Israel's history. You're going to see the construction of the tabernacle is now complete. By this point, God's instructions for the the various sacrifices, they've been received. You have the priests with Aaron and uh, the sons. They've been consecrated to God, and they know God's commands and what they're supposed to do. The inaugural worship of the tabernacle is now taking place. People are excited. The sacrifices have been pleasing to God. In fact, remember... Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar are all part of this. There's, there's nothing right now that's saying, ooh, bad Nadab and Abihu. By eight chapters 8 and 9, it is, a, it is a promising time for these men. It is an exciting time. God even sends miraculous fire to light the altar that's never to go out, and that's the fire that's to be used for the sacrifice. It's a wonderful and, and miraculous time. And in fact, in that time, that, that time of great promise, the time with the worship... Aaron and the sons, they have this great promise. You'll see, if you go through chapters 8 and 9, 12 different times, you're going to see that Moses and the priests, that's Aaron and his sons, they did exactly what God had commanded them to do. These men were living for God. They were doing what is right. And you finish up with chapter 9 with all this great promise in Leviticus, and you come to chapter 10. And when we get to chapter 10, it says, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord. And look look how it ends. Which he, the Lord, had commanded them not to do. He, He had given them a command. They had not. He didn't say do this. They did it on their own. They presumed their responsibility. They did what they wanted to do in this situation. And they offered a strange fire before the Lord. And so Leviticus 10 records the manifestation of God's judgment, which honestly is not a very popular subject nowadays. To talk about the fact that God is a just God and that he will judge sin. 
We don't want to talk about it because we're all sinners. And we all know deep down inside of our hearts the sins that we have and the sins that we struggle with and we battle with. So it's easier for us to put away the judgment of God and the justice of God rather than to look at God's word and say, what is he talking about? What is happening with the justice and the judgment of God? So let's, let's look a little bit deeper at Nadab and Abihu and the situation that occurs here. We're going to see that these, these were privileged leaders. You have the, the sons of Aaron. They're the nephews of Moses. They are spiritual leaders in this land. They have been on Mount Sinai. They had uh, been chosen. They had been consecrated to the priesthood. They assisted Aaron with the worshiping and the, the ritual rites of worship and the sacrifices. But they offered this strange fire. It was a profane. They, they profane the holy things of God with unholy things. In other words, they were basically, they were disobedient. They did not follow through on what God had commanded. The text doesn't exactly say what the fire was or, or where it came from or why they did what they did. There's, there's some inferences that can be made. But it, it really, in the, in the whole scope of it, it doesn't completely matter because God looks and says, this is serious enough, this is heinous enough that we're going to deal with it. But the fire, we don't know. But the questions do arise. Was, was it a foreign fire? Because the word strange is often later on used for the stranger, the foreigner who would come toward the tabernacle or the one who would try and come into uh, the tribe. It talks about the stranger, something that is completely different then. From, so did it come from a pagan ritual? Were they starting to get involved in maybe a pagan ritual with some of the individuals who came out of Egypt who were not necessarily uh, followers of Jehovah? Was it a, a, just a common fire that came from the camp and God is not a common God? God is not to be treated just like us. And so was it something that was just something just plain and ordinary and they thought, well, this will be good enough for God. So they offered it to him. Was it because they were drunk? Look in verse number nine, the teaching that's going to come out of this, this passage. It's really interesting. Don't look at these and just say, oh, well, God must have just forgot to, to stick this in. So randomly in the middle of this dealing with Nadab and Abihu, he says, oh, by the way, Aaron, when you come to, uh, to serve, don't be drunk. Don't be drinking wine or uh, the strong drink or the idea would be the barley bear beer uh, that they would have had uh, in that era, that time period. Uh, it says, verse nine, do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest you die. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations, and that you put difference between the holy, or that you may put difference or discern between the holy and the unholy, between the clean and the unclean, that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken at the hand of Moses. Could it be? That possibly Nadab and Abihu, when they went to offer, they, they weren't discerning because they were inebriated. Because they maybe had been drinking before they went in and weren't able to discern. A number of commentators hold to that idea that that's possibly why out of this it's very directly given. You, as a priest, you need to be able to discern between unholy and, and holy. You need to be able to discern between clean and unclean. So don't you dare come into my presence, God is saying, and just be unable to do that discernment. That's a possibility. But the, the text doesn't give us the direct answer as to why. The, the text just looks and says, this, this all happened. So with this strange fire, the simple fact is that they brought in this unauthorized fire and it introduced confusion into the, sa uh, the sacred rituals that they were to perform, the ones that were given to them by the Lord. So they were not following through on what God had said. And when the Lord, the Lord requires obedience 
to that which he prescribes. We must remember that. From the story of Nadab and Abihu, when we go into life, when God prescribes something, we must follow it. We must obey it. Where the Lord, uh, Alan Ross says this, where the Lord clearly prescribes what should be done or directly prohibits what should not be done, there is no room for innovation or alteration. For us to come up with a fancy way around God's word. For us to, to come up with a way, well, I really want to do this, so I'll try and piece together some random parts of Scripture in order to make myself feel better. No, when God says this is what we are to do, we are to do it. And when God says this is what we are not supposed to do, we are not to do it. There is no opportunity for us to innovate, for us to alter what God has said. That, that comes down even in areas like the, the gospel. We do not have the right to innovate to alter the gospel in any way, shape, or form. God has established what the gospel is. Yes, I understand that sin makes people uncomfortable. Yes, I understand that the idea of the blood makes people squeamish, but we don't have the right to alter that. That is what God has prescribed. There is one way to heaven, and it is through Jesus Christ. There is no opportunity to coexist with the ideas of, well, they're okay and they're okay. No, we must follow God's prescribed plans. Nadab and Abihu were not doing that. There seems to be no malice initially when they did it. What, we have no indication that they were seeking subterfuge or some other way. They, they, seen, they may have even prepared themselves for the service with sincerity, with reverence, as they understood it. But all of those, none of that is an excuse that is valid before a holy God. God has said, this is my plan. God has said, this is what I want you to do, Nadab and Abihu. And you can't say, well, I really, it was really meant with good intentions. When we come to worship God, we have a responsibility to worship as God desires us to worship, to do what God desires us to be doing. Not to say, well, I just, I, I came with really good intentions, God. You can accept anything. He, he, we can't take the, the unholy and bring it into the holy and say, well, it was with good intentions. We have a responsibility to be following, to, to follow after what God has prescribed, what God has said with God's plans. With Nadab and Abihu, we know that, that they ignore God's commands and they offered some different type of sacrifice. Could they have been lacking discernment because they were drunk? I, I personally, I, I think there's a strong possibility in an inference from the text there that, that that's the case. And we talked about that, but look at, look at verse 10. Why do they need to be clear-minded? Why do they need to be able to do this? Because they need to be able to discern. They need to be able to be able to distinguish between the holy and the unholy, the right and the wrong. What a beautiful picture, even for us today as the priests of God. We are a royal priesthood. We have a responsibility in our lives to, according to God's word, be able to discern between right and wrong between unholy and holy, between clean and unclean. Not saying go back to the law, but to be able to discern and say, is this right? Is this right for me? Not what is wrong with it, using that old argument, but looking and saying, what is right about this? I'm to test all things, to be able to discern them. That is your responsibility. That is my responsibility as the royal priesthood of God to look and to discern between right and wrong. And so they did not do that. The Lord sends fire and it consumes them. 
And this was not just some whimsical God standing up there with his lightning bolt ready to zap them. They well knew. In fact, in in chapter 8, verse 35, it talks about, Therefore you shall abide at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation on that day and keep charge of the Lord that you not die, for so I am commanded. They understood there were responsibilities that they had to do, and if they did not keep them, the death was a strong possibility. So it wasn't just an unwarned God just decided to randomly zap them. They, they knew that they were to follow. They did not heed Moses' warning, and therefore the Lord did strike them down. And they were, they were, there was a direct disobedience with this counterfeit fire, which could not signify the true fire, what true fire did. The true fire that came from God, it showed the acceptability of the sacrifice. And God looks and says, this is not acceptable. This offering, this fire, this strange fire that you're bringing. And so the judgment of Nadab and Abihu must have been something of great magnitude to warrant such swift and sudden judgment from God. In fact, it happens in times when new things are occurring. You remember the first time that the the Ark of the Covenant is going to be moved to Jerusalem. It starts to tip. Uzzah touches it. What happens to Uzzah? He dies. It's it's, It's God saying, this is serious. The first time sacrifices are taking place, something new is occurring, and they try to introduce something false. They do something contrary to God's word. Death is there. God is saying this is serious. I do not want you introducing confusion or other ideas into this. Remember in uh, Acts chapter 5, you have Ananias and Sapphira at the beginning of the church. They're doing something, and they just, they, they're not honest in all of their dealings with their real estate and with the church, and God strikes them down. There are all these aspects where there are times where swift and sudden judgment comes from God. And he's making points here. And here he's really highlighting that this is a serious time and don't introduce falseness. You, you discern between right and wrong, between clean and unclean, between holy and unholy. And then the rest of the story that occurs in Numbers chapter 10, you're going to see that Aaron and his sons, they're not allowed to mourn. Verses 4 through 7 they're, they're, in fact, Moses calls in some other family members from outside the priesthood to come in and take the bodies of Nadab and Abihu and take them out. And then he looks at Aaron in verse number six, and he says uh, to Aaron, Eliezer, and Ithamel, uncover not your heads. Don't shave your heads. Don't rend your clothes, uh, lest you die. Lest the wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole, let everybody else bewail the burning. But you cannot, you can't even leave the, the, the temple or the, the tabernacle. He says, you're not going to be allowed to mourn here. Why? Why can't they mourn? Because if they start mourning the things of, the, the judgment of God, would people start to think, well, the priests, they, they don't think that um, God's judgment's fair. That God was unjust in this. And so they're not allowed to even, they're not allowed to even mourn. The, the verses 8 through 11, you get the, the lesson that comes from this incident with the direct uh, responsibility. Don't be drunk when you're coming in. And you need to, more importantly, it, it highlights, you need to be able to discern and to teach. So you need to be clear-headed. You need to be ready. You need to not introduce the unholy things into worship, not introduce the unrighteous things into the life of the people, but to discern and to teach them the truths and the commands of the Lord. Then, and then he says, Moses tells the people, or the priests, in verse 12 through 15, he says, hey, go back to normal life. God is due his sacrifice. I want you to go eat. I want you to do what you're normally supposed to do. And let's, let's go back to this. Like this is the same day. 
And he's saying, we're, we're going to move forward because we're not going to mourn the unrighteous and the unholy that has happened here. And then you have this, this situation where in verses 16 through 20, some of the priests, especially Aaron and his sons, they're not eating. They don't feel like they can go back. And Moses, Moses asked them, well, why aren't you doing it? In fact, Moses seems a little bit irritated. Like, why are you not doing what I have commanded you? Down, in, uh, down toward uh, verse 16, as, as they're there. And uh, he says, why aren't, why aren't you doing this? Uh, the end of verse 15. Uh, as the Lord has commanded. He's like, why haven't you gone back to it? And Aaron's going to respond to why are we, why are we disobeying your command, Moses, right now? And he's going to look and he's going to say, well, we, we felt since priestly sin was involved, it didn't seem right for us in this situation to go eat, eat the meal. Aaron wondered, honestly, if the Lord would have been pleased if they had eaten. And so he, he gave the explanation to Moses. And it pleased Moses, verse 20 says, so Moses understood, which I appreciate the, the practical application where Moses was willing to listen to somebody who was for some reason not doing what he had asked. He was willing to hear him out. He could have very easily looked at Aaron and said, you're done. You did not, I just told you to do this. You did not obey. But Moses was willing to entreat, to listen to him. And that happened. And uh, presumably there's a possibility here. Aaron thought that since Nadab and Abihu were his sons, he bore some of the guilt for that action. And therefore he could not or should not participate in, in the worship leadership. So he felt like, well, I'm the dad. I didn't do my best. So there's a possibility that even he may have felt that way. We don't know all of it, but we know that his explanation to Moses, it, it pleased him. As we look at this tragic tale, and it's more than a tale because it is true, truly what has happened. What do, we, what do we learn from this? Why is this so important even then to Numbers chapters three and four? What is it about this? I think as we look at it, God must be approached as holy. We must approach God as holy. I will be sanctified, he says in verse 3, and them that come nigh to me. The word sanctified is to be set apart, to be holy, to be uh, uh, totally other. He's like, you don't come to me in just this common frivolous way. But he says, when you're coming to worship me, when you are coming unto me, you come to me, you will be sanctified. You will be clean. You will, you will set yourself apart and I will be set apart. A.W. Tozer says this in Knowledge of the Holy. And if you've never read the book, Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, you need to read that book. It is profound when it comes to the holiness of God. And then even another book called The Pursuit of the Holy. They're, they're just great books on the holiness of God. But he says, we cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness of God by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising that concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. He says, we know nothing like his divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, it is unapproachable, incomprehensible, unattainable. He is God. He is wholly other, completely separate from us. And it's because of that that we come to him with reverence. We don't treat him like the brother down the street. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. But he's not just this trivial manifestation of, oh, he's just this guy out there. He's not the big man in the sky. Those are irreverent. He is God. He is holy. And we must approach him as holy. 
When God's holiness is trite, sin becomes trivial. And when sin is trivial, justice seems extreme. We will look and say, my goodness, why in the world would God zap Nadab and Abihu because they offered, oh, come on. That's, we look at sin as trite, as trivial, because we see the holiness of God as trite. God is holy. He expects us to be holy, to be striving to be right with him, to be putting a short end to sin. When we look at sin, we have to acknowledge that God is judge. The holy God of this universe, we must acknowledge him as judge. When we look at this passage, God judges Nadab and Abihu, and we must acknowledge that he was right in doing so because he is a holy God and they offered the unholy. They brought in something that was not right. They did not follow the commands of the Lord. And we must acknowledge God as judge. If we see God's punishment for sin as too severe, then we don't understand the seriousness of sin. Sin destroys. When we sin, it becomes easier and easier the next time. Sin is not stagnant. It just doesn't happen and it doesn't have impact. Sin moves. It impacts. It causes us to want to go further. The more we live in sin, the easier it becomes to sin. The more we sin, the more we look the other way at sin or the sins of those close to us. We do no one a favor. We must, as a family of God, look at sin and say, sin destroys We want sin out. We want leaven out. So when God stops our sin, he's actually doing us a favor. When God stopped the sin of Nadab and Abihu, he was doing the children of Israel a favor, not allowing them to look and say, well, I guess we can do whatever we want to do. We can worship however we want to worship. It doesn't really matter. God doesn't really care. So we can live our lives and we can do whatever we want. No, God says, no, I do care. And the sin is wrong and we're going to put an end to the sin. It was a gracious act by God to stop the sin so that it did not continue to spread into the community of believers, into the nation of Israel. Sin destroys. And we must acknowledge that when God judges sin, he does it righteously. He does it because he is holy. When, we, when, when God is doing something new, He made his judgments extensive and extreme. And I alluded to this already because he knew the disobedience could have become extensive. He wanted to stop it soon. Don't we do this with our kids? We find ourselves early on doing a lot of discipline. Why? Because we don't want them to think they can just continually go on the way they want to go. We're correcting. We're bringing back in the road. We're we're putting them on the right path that God has established. I don't know if you've heard of this term called free-range parenting. That's, that's taking the, the nation by storm, not really, but there are people who follow it, this concept that you just let the kids do whatever and they're going to learn the life lessons. If they want to educate themselves, they'll eventually ask you how, how math works, and so then we'll teach them that. Or they'll eventually, you know, realize that this is wrong. It's flawed. Man is not innately good, and neither are my kids. And so I have to look and say, I can't just let them go. No, we, we correct early on. We correct often. It's not fun. It's not enjoyable. But yet we do it because it is just, it is right, because we we bring them back to the holiness of God. We show them the sin and we help them to put them on the path that God has established for them. God does the same thing with us. 
He judges us. He corrects us. He chastens us to put us back on the path. And God did that with Nadab and Abihu. As God's people, third thing, we must accept the responsibility to represent our holy and just God. That's what Aaron and his sons had to make a choice to do. Were they going to mourn and disobey God or were they going to follow after and do what was right? They were going to have to make this decision. They have been anointed. They have been set apart. They have been consecrated. Just like you and I have been, we are called set apart ones. We are called saints. We have been consecrated to God. We are to live a life that is separate, the life that is sanctified, a life that is holy. They were told you can't mourn your brothers, your son. You must re- remain alert with the, the teaching in verse number nine about don't come into the sanctuary inebriated and not able to discern and teach people and train people with righteousness. He says, you have to be self-controlled. You have to represent your holy God. And we must accept the responsibility to represent our holy God, our just God. As we go out in our lives, we must seek to live holy. Why? Because we have accepted the responsibility as believers to be right with God and to represent him responsibly appropriately, the way that God desires us. We are his ambassadors. We are the ones who represent him. We are his priests. We are to represent our God. After the death of Nadab and Abihu, the priests and the Levites, they would have understood the importance of respecting God and obeying his commands. Why at the beginning of Numbers chapters three and four does he start with the death of Nadab and Abihu? Because he's about to tell all of these Levites and all of these priests some of their duties, and some of them are going to seem mundane, but he's going to say, this is what I've commanded you to do, and you do it the best that you can, and you do it with all of your righteousness and with all of your holiness, because what you're about to do is a sacred service to God. They're going to have that seared into their mind because their leaders just in the last few months were zapped with fire from heaven because they did not do what was holy and righteous before God. They did not obey God. They did not follow his commands. And so the people understood that. And that sets the stage for Numbers 3 and 4. That's why it's so important for us to get that picture in our mind. That God is a holy and a just God who we represent. And we are to represent him correctly and appropriately. To be able to discern and to live righteously before our fellow family members and before this world. We too have the responsibility to treat God as holy and obey him. But let's be honest, we face temptations like Nadab and Abihu all the time. Disobedience, pride, apostasy, lacking love, unholy living, all those things bombard us. But we must live righteous before God. We tend to believe that the fire we invent is better than the fire God commands. Let's not try and reinvent what God has said. Let's, let's look at what God says and let's practically live it out day by day. Let's understand his word. Let's go forward. When God speaks, there is no room for innovation. We must not corrupt God's word by what we say or what we do. In fact, Ross, uh, Alan Ross, he's a commentator in the book of Leviticus. He says, God's people are ever prone to think that their way, their fire, their ideas are better than God's primitive and unpopular ways. Don't buy into this idea that, well, this is just an old book and God's ways are just archaic. No, let's look at what God's word says and let's live it. Let's look at what God's word says for worship and let's do it. Let's look at what God's word says for righteous living in the family and let's live that way. 
We are to do that. We are to introduce the holy to the holy things, not to bring in unholy and unrighteous and unclean into the world. God's people accept the responsibility to represent him the way he intends us to represent him. That's your responsibility. That's mine. We must come to the point where we are looking and saying, he has demanded it. He has expected it. He has commanded it. And he has the right to do so because he is far greater than any dictator, any king, any president, any governor. He is God. He's completely other and he has the right and the authority to tell us how to live and what to do in our lives. Have you ever thought about God's grace in this judgment? I alluded to it earlier, that God was gracious in judging them. But have you ever thought even further beyond that? God's grace in judgment is definitely shown out through the cross of Jesus Christ. God judges sin. He places it all upon Jesus Christ. He judges him. The wrath of God is poured out upon Jesus Christ. And yet we look in that, we look at the cross of Christ and we say, what grace? What favor is bestowed upon us? Why? Because we see the benefits. We reap the benefits of the wrath, the judgment that is divinely, righteously, holy, and justly poured out upon Jesus Christ. God's grace in judgment is beautiful. If we understand God is a holy God, we are unrighteous sinners and we need his grace to prevent his judgment upon us. The grace that God has demonstrated daily is because of his mercy. It's because of his mercy that I am not consumed. It is because he is not slack concerning his promise, but rather that he is patient that we might come to repentance. And I understand that's just a pushing through of a bunch of verses. But God's grace is shown to me daily. It's shown to you daily. I should be consumed. I should have been consumed multiple times over this week because of my sin, because of my thoughts, because of my heart. And yet God in his graciousness has looked and said, I've poured it out on Jesus Christ, but get right with me. You be holy. You live righteously. You live holy so that you can represent me to this world. What kind of life, if if people look at our lives and how we live, what kind of God are we representing? Are we representing a holy God? Or are we representing a God who's okay with, you know, sin here and sin there and no big deal? My life represents the holy God, the righteous God, the just God. And we have to ask ourselves, are we living that way? If we're living in sin, we need to repent. It's so freeing to ask God to forgive and experience his forgiveness. If you're not saved and you're bound in sin, guess what? You repent of your sin, you get saved. It is freeing. We, if you're living righteously, then remain. The joy of living in holiness is freedom. It's great. It's wonderful to experience the freedom and the forgiveness of God. And you know, we celebrated the 4th of July this week. The independence of America. And sadly, we look at our nation And our hearts are heavy because of the way that so many things seem to be going. We wonder, do people really ascribe to the truths of America? We look and we say, do we really believe that all men are created equal? We look and say, have people forsaken law? Have people chosen to just put away the idea that we have the right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness here in America? We we look and say, have people just forsaken law? what we as a nation have been about for all these years. 
But I want to ask you a very pointed question. We pledge allegiance to this flag and we look at America, but I want to ask you this. Have you pledged allegiance to Jesus? For salvation, yes. But believers, we say we ascribe to him. We pledge our allegiance to God, to Jesus. But do we represent who he is? What he is about? His commands through our holy living? Through our righteousness? I'm asking you very clearly, where's your allegiance? Is your allegiance to God? And if not, repent. Get right with him. We must be a holy people as we represent a holy God. Do you pledge allegiance to Jesus? Father, I pray that you would help us to live for you in a righteous and holy way. God, give us the strength when we don't feel that we can repent, that we feel our sin is too great, and we know that it is great before you, but God, help us to understand that you are willing to forgive. Help us to be right with you. Help us to live right with you. Help us not to be undiscerning, but rather to see you as holy, as just, and help us to represent you in how we live. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time as we look at the rest of Numbers chapters 3 and 4.